no longer bound by fear, no longer found in shame. Here we are now, children of a mighty God. We have been marked, marked by grace. We have been called by name. Here we are now, children of a mighty God. A mighty God. I belong to God. Welcome. If you're uh, excited about the fact that you do belong to God, just say amen. It's not a wonderful thing to, to think about that we are children of a God that loves us, a Father that knows exactly what we need whenever we need it, and He loves us enough that He disciplines us when we deserve it, and He always looks out for us and cares for us. And so I just want to welcome you to Cross Timber. It's a good morning to be in the house of the Lord. It was a little foggy out, but I think it's supposed to be a beautiful day in the 70s. And we are 
glad that you have taken the opportunity this morning to join with us for worship. If you're here in person or if you're listening in online, it's, it's good to see you. If you're visiting or if you're a regular attender or if you're a visitor that's a regular attender, any way about it, we are glad you are here. I don't have one in front of me, but there's a little card in the bulletin that is a great way for you to communicate with us. So if you want to um, receive more information about the church or share information, even prayer requests, things like that, just write it on the little card, put it in the offering plate in just a few minutes when our um, deacons pass that along. I um, just want to highlight um, a couple of things, and then Deborah's going to come and, and tell the, the ladies about an opportunity to connect and, and enjoy Bible study. Um, you may notice in the center section of the bulletin that... Um, there is an opportunity for a senior adult trip, and I've been informed that this is not just for seniors, but those who are senior at heart. Um, First Baptist um, Church of Burleson, um, Dr. Um, Don Newberry, has um, planned a trip in June to Lubbock to have lunch and worship with um, Brother Jimmy Nelson, along with a stop in Plainview and Paladura Canyon, and there are museum stops and um, a play along the way and I'm sure um, several humorous stories from Dr. Newberry um, along the journey. If that's something you're interested in, um, the cost is $225. It includes um, meals, lodging, and all the events. Um, you can just let Dawn know that you're interested in the church office, and she can pass that on to um, Dr. Newberry at First Baptist. And um, they called and wanted to make that available because I know some of you um, have known Dr. Nelson for a long time, and it would be a good opportunity to not only see him but enjoy um, the beauty of West Texas and see if indeed Plainview was named after the fact that there was a Plainview. Um, I don't know. I had Mr. I had Mr. Seals in seventh grade history, and we um, we spent half a class period talking about um, the names of Texas cities. And so you know, you get Plainview, you get Grandview, you know, all these places and how they got their names. Um, then you have those places, you know, like Dimebox and Griffith Switch and other places and you wonder how their names came about and um, you can only wonder but sometimes it's it's a good laugh to uh, to guess none of that has anything to do with church but sometimes I just kind of wander a bit um, let me just um, remind you about our Wednesday activities and Deborah's going to come and tell you about um, the ladies opportunity Monday uh, Wednesdays we have Bible study at 11 um, it's a time to enjoy lunch sing Bible study and prayer together along with fellowship and so I invite you I'm um, there it's been called the Senior Adult Bible Study, but it's really open to those of all ages. So if you are available during that time on Wednesday, we'd love to see you. And then also Wednesday evenings at 6.30, we gather here to pray not only for our church, but for um, the surrounding community and also the world around us. And now Deborah's going to share, and if you want to start turning in your Bibles, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1 as we read from God's Word this morning. If you'll see the announcement in your bulletin, um, that we're going to, starting on March 13th, we're going to have a koinonia night again. We've done this before where we met in separate groups and we did studies and things like that. We're going to have this one group on Monday nights at um, 6.30 at the Kroger. And um, it's, it's a great way to just kind of be in the public and be around where people are, you know, milling around or maybe to bring somebody else in that maybe wouldn't be, um, be at the church or whatever. But um, we're going to be doing the book by Beth Moore called Chasing Vines. Um, chasing vines, and um, if you can't come on Mondays, um, that's not a problem. If you want to order one of the books, just sign up. I've got it on the sign-up sheet. It just has a box that says, I'll be there. And if you can't, just put an X there, 
if you can, put a check. And um, that just kind of helps us to know. I know we're not starting until March 13th, and that's the week of spring break. And if you're not, if you can't beat the first one, don't worry about it too much. It's just going to be kind of a planning of what's going to be happening, and we can fill you in on that. I won't be there actually that day. Um, Kim Kramer is going to be leading it, and so. Um, but anyway, it's a really. I've started reading it, and it's really, really good, and um, really encouraging. And so, um, I'll just encourage you, even if you can't be a part of a Monday night, pick it up. And it may be something that you'd like to invite somebody to your house, and you just two of you have coffee and, and go through it together. But it's really, really encouraging. So um, anyway, you can do that. And then we have um, Ladies Connect coming up in a couple of weeks, and um, so we can talk about it more then as well. Okay? Deborah, you're a fan. Yeah, it's a good. It's good to know. Um, you know. You're looking for a book for a book study. It's good to know in advance because if you're if you're like me, you have the opportunity to go online and shop and get the best prices, and you know maybe you can come across a good used copy that somebody's already unloaned, underlined all the important parts, and then you don't have to read. Oh, I'm sorry. You should get a clean copy and take notes for yourself so you can learn. Um, we're going to read from Philippians chapter one this morning. We look at the words of of Paul in a in a somewhat familiar section. And we'll start reading there in verse number 18, and we'll read through the remainder of the chapter. So in verse 18, Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in presence or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that you, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still Gentlemen, will you come and receive the offering? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise because you are the great and mighty God. You alone are the Lord that created the heavens, even the highest heavens and all the stars earth and all that is on it and the seas and all them and 
we give life to everything. Lord, we come before you today to worship you as, as that God that is above all equal in all heaven and earth. We praise you, Lord, for your greatness, the greatness of your name, and for all that you've been doing out of love and compassion. Father, today we ask you to bless this service, bless your word that is read, and, and Lord, we bless each of our hearts that be open to understanding what you have for us each one today. We love you, Lord, and we pray for uh, Rusty, your servant, as he brings your message today. Just be with him and give him the power and the unction that is his needed to honor and glorify your name in the midst of us today. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that, everybody. I was just really excited about talking about how God spoke to me yesterday. Um, like I said, I've been practicing this song all week, and you know, I've been praying about it. And all of a sudden, God spoke to me and said, "You know, have I not been good to you all of your life, your entire life? I mean, from when I could comprehend, you know, to uh, now." And uh, He's just been really good to me. And I said, "Yes, you have, Lord. You've been so good to me." And um, I just. I want everybody to open up their hearts and open up their souls to uh, the Holy Spirit this morning and just listen to him talk to you because he does talk to you, even in the storms. I mean, he, he's like, you know, I know you go through storms in your life, but haven't I always been there for you? Yes, you, you've been there for me through everything. And just, you know, when you feel alone, you're not alone. He's always there with you. So listen to him. Just open up your heart and your soul to him. I love you, Lord. All your mercy never fails me. All of my days. I've been
you stand and sing with us this morning? There is a name who reigns without contention, whose power can be questioned or contained with humble fame. You rule the earth and heavens, His glory knows no measure or refrain. And it bursting past the borderlines of space. Jesus, and all the fallen praises of our Every heart will know there is no name. 
contention Most power can be questioned or condemned With humble things You rule the earth and heavens His glory knows no measure or refrain And his birth seems past the borderline of space Everybody has trials and temptations. Everybody knows heartbreak and isolation. Forever 
Everybody has fears. Everybody has worries. Everybody knows sorrow and devastation.
have your Bible, you can turn over to Esther chapter 4. Um, it's kind of funny, Wednesday during staff meeting, Christina asked me what I was preaching on, and I said, well, you know, it's Esther chapter 3 and 4, and the title's going to be something like, um, we're all going to die, Esther, you got to do something, and um, I told her good luck. I'm choosing songs that go with that, but I really can't imagine a song more fitting than um, that wonderful song, I'll Follow You, written by John Guerra, and I'm um, just you listen to those words, they just speak to the depth, the power of the transformation of the gospel, that you can truly see the words of Paul, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, that there is a better reward waiting um, for us than this world can ever offer, and we are so blessed in this season to enjoy, you know, the blessing and the favor, the grace of God. We sing that other song and you just think about grace on every horizon and you look around and you think because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross that through faith in him we're no longer under law but under grace. And that grace sets the boundaries of our living and in the abundance of His grace, God just says, run free and live for me. And when we step outside those lines, because He loves us and He's a good Father, what does He do? He disciplines us, right? 
That's what grace is. It doesn't give us the freedom to do everything we want to do. It just gives us the freedom to operate within God's boundaries. And because God is merciful, when we do stray outside, He brings us back. And we are so wonderfully thankful for that. Just a side note before we start um, this morning, if you have not, if you didn't have an opportunity to go on Wednesday or on Friday or Saturday and see the movie Jesus Revolution, um, I encourage you to do so. Find a time that fits for you and your family. Bring a friend. Um, It not only speaks to the power of of transformation um, through what Jesus can do in people's lives, as it traces the story of Pastor Greg Laurie and the beginnings of the Jesus movement in California, but it also um, it speaks volumes to the church. And is the church truly loving and accepting like we say we are? Do we truly have a door that's open to all? And are we willing to love those that in many cases are hard to love with love and compassion through um, the power of Christ in us? So if you haven't um, taken that opportunity, um, I encourage you to do so. Um, through an early screening through Wednesday. I've seen it twice, and I could probably um, see it again. And I just, um, I can't say more about it except go see it and find out for yourself. But today we're going to talk about being delivered from danger. Now, just about everyone I, I know probably loves the great hero stories. You know, there's a life and death situation. The clock is ticking. The odds are against the the hero, and if he doesn't step in and do something, everybody's going to die. Nobody else is available. There's that one man, that one woman that could change the course of events, but it could very well cost them their, their life. But it has to be done. And those movies always, most always end with, with a happy ending, the hero is successful. People are delivered from danger and all is well. In some moments, there's deliverance from danger and that hero sacrifices their, their life for the good of others. And as wonderful and exciting a picture as the movies can paint or a book can display with the words, we're going to look at a true story where Queen Esther is faced with a life-and-death situation. She doesn't act. The Jewish people might perish. And it could be that God had made her queen of the Persian Empire for this very reason. And we'll look beyond that story of Esther to see that it points to the greatest hero story that exists, that there's the greatest rescue from the greatest danger ever. In fact, when we look at Esther chapter 3 and chapter 4 this morning, I hope we see that in Jesus, God provided the perfect mediator who willingly died in our place so that we might live. Now, while we're going to cover chapters 3 and 4 this morning, we're only going to read chapter 4. But I do encourage you as we look at the text together in just a few months to follow along in chapter 3. But there's so much that is important in chapter 4, I felt like we couldn't Get away from reading it. And so to give you a brief preview, chapter 3 is the plots discovered um, and preparations are made to see if Esther could maybe do something about it. 
The documents are signed. There are celebrations going on. And Mordecai, in verse 1, we find him. He learns that all, all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hapash, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hapash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to look at this wonderful story of bravery and faith that points us toward the Lord Jesus, our perfect mediator. So Lord, help us to, um, to follow along, to understand the truth that you have and speak to our hearts and our minds and change us and make us to be more like your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Remember from last week, Esther becomes queen. The king is pleased, and Mordecai is concerned for Esther. He's checking in on her. And at the end of chapter 3, Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king, and he gets word to Esther, and Esther tells the king 
And the king has it recorded in his book that Mordecai shared the news, but he's not rewarded, which was uncommon for the day. And so then we transition to chapter 4, and a man rises to power in the kingdom, but it's not Mordecai. No, it's one who is an enemy of the Jews. And while he rises to power, Mordecai goes unrewarded. And this morning, I want us to see the danger that rises for the Jews, the need for deliverance, and the deliverer, the mediator that God raises up, one who is both courageous and faithful. But I think we have to be honest and understand that evil rises up in every generation. That all throughout history, wicked men have wicked plans, and hatred and evil um, are abound. And the things we read about shock us and appall us. And we ask questions of ourselves and others. Could anything be done? Could somebody do something? And then even on the extreme, we ask, where's God? What's God going to do in these situations? And in Esther's day, danger, wickedness was on the rise, but at the same time, God was in control. And there was an underlying promise that Mordecai knew about, that God would protect his people. And so I want us to see two things as we look at it this morning. The first thing is that there, in chapter 3, there's a clear and present danger. You may have heard that phrase before. Um, I think there was a movie called Clear and Present Danger, but it comes out of a Supreme, Supreme Court ruling where one of the Supreme Court justices just issued that, you know, where something is an undoubted threat to the people, where there is an immediate sense that if something is not done, then great harm can be done. And they called it clear and present danger, and they've used that language in other Supreme Court cases. But I think it fits here. And as we follow through the chapter, we see that this danger starts rising when a man named Haman is promoted. And you see it in the first two verses. He makes it not to king, but to second in command. Now, what's so unique about this man, Haman? Well, he has a very hostile ancestry. The verses tell us he's an Agagite. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. Specifically, he's named after King Agag. And in Deuteronomy 25, we read that Agag didn't fear God. And the Amalekites were longtime troublers and enemies of Israel. And as you follow along in the story of God's people, they cry out for a king. God gives them a king. He gives them King Saul, who was by all accounts the perfect king from the world's standard. And Saul and his army have an opportunity to thoroughly eliminate the Amalekites. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to destroy everything. Saul, if you want to read about it, it's 1 Samuel 15. Saul spares the king, Agag, and he keeps the very best sheep, ox, lambs, and the Bible says he keeps everything that was good. And then he lies to the prophet Samuel. You know, he says, no, we, we did everything and Samuel replies, as only God can put in the heart of a prophet to speak to a king, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Another way of saying that is, well, Saul, if you killed everything, how come I hear sheep bleeding? And the prophet goes on to tell the king that 
because you've rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you. And so it's goodbye, Saul. Enter in David. But from this surviving enemy, King Agag, a descendant is Haman. And we'll see pretty soon that he carries on his family line of being a troubler and enemy of the Jews. Now, I think it's funny that all the officials are commanded to bow down to Haman. Now, normally, it would be a, a understanding in the court that if there was an official that you would bow to them out of respect, but here the king has to specify, no, you need to bow to Haman. Um, you know, almost like that, that punk kid in school, you know, that's in your class, and all of a sudden he's the, you know, the line leader for the day, and nobody likes him, but the teacher's like, no, you need to respect him, you know, you be nice to him. You know, he's the leader. It's not that he's deserving of respect. It's that it's commanded. And he's the number two in the kingdom. And he's a descendant of the ancient enemy of Israel. And you see in the next few verses, verses 2 through 5, that hatred rises. It all starts with a man named Mordecai, who we know is a Jew. And though there's a command to bow, he does not bow. doesn't tell us why. It could be he just had a lack of respect for Haman. It could be religious reasons. He thought, okay, no, this guy's an Agagite. But we're not sure. But we know the reason that he's not bowing is not because he's against royal port- protocol. It's because of something about this man, Haman. And so the other servants begin to ask Mordecai, you know, why aren't you bowing, Mordecai? And I think they're kind of worried. They're thinking, okay, you know, if Mordecai doesn't bow, he's going to, you know, he's going to die. And so I think they're looking out for him. But Mordecai doesn't answer. And they're here trying to save his neck, and he refuses to bow. And finally, they don't have any other answers. And so they go tell Haman, which is kind of funny. You know, it's being tattled on. You know, this guy, hey, Mordecai's not bowing to you. But the laughter stops there because the verses tell us that Haman is filled with fury, burning with anger. And the rage goes from Mordecai to all his people. Look at verse 6. Listen to this language. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So he's looking for total destruction of God's people. And it reminded me, and should remind us of, you know, this truth that the devil hates God and the things of God. And that hate doesn't stop with God. It extends to the people of God. And like a roaring lion, he will do all he can as long as he is able to continue to steal and to kill and to destroy. And out of that bitter hatred... Verses 7 through 11 show us comes a royal death sentence. So Haman hatches this plot that he wants to kill all the Jews. And so the first thing he needs to do is he needs to to set a date. When is it going to happen? And so he rolls the dice in our language, or if you look there, he casts the pure or casts lots. This book reminds the Jewish people of the beginnings of the Feast of Purim, which comes from that word pure to cast. 
and both pagans and God people cast lots to determine the outcome of situations. Now, those that were God's people did it to determine God's will and, you know, non-godly people do it just to leave it up to fate. And so they cast the lots, leaving it up to faith, but we have faith, but we have to remember that God's always in control. And so he sets this date 11 months from that day, so there's plenty of time for all the plans to be made. It's interesting that that day that is set is the day before the Passover lambs are to be slaughtered. So the day that commemorates the deliverance of God's people, the day before Haman has set to be for the destruction of God's people. And then the story goes into a, a series of truth and lies and bribes. So Haman's talking to the king, and he gives him a true statement. There is a certain people scattered about the kingdom, of course, the Jews. But then he bends the truth and uses half-truths. They have different beliefs. That's true. And they're disobeying the king's law. There's no understanding that we have from the verses that the Jews were disobedient. But he tells the king that, and as a result, he says, King, you shouldn't tolerate that. In fact, they should all be destroyed. And I'm so confident in this, I'm going to give you a large sum of money for the royal treasury. So we see at this point that King Ahasuerus is easily swayed by the people that he puts in close contact with himself. And so he agrees. The decree is written by Haman. It's sealed by the king in the name of the king. And... At that point, it becomes the law of the land. The death sentence is set. And chapter 3 ends with a celebration of evil. Ahasuerus and Haman are enjoying a drink together to toast their success. But all the while, it says Susa, that fortress city, is in confusion. You can imagine the empire both... Persian and Jew are wondering what's going to happen. And you're reading as you end this chapter, you can almost imagine, you know, sinister laughter from Haman mixed with sadness, confusion, and questions from all of the people, leading you to wonder what's going to happen next and what is God going to do for his people. But that clear and present danger is met with a courageous and faithful mediator. Mediator is a go-between. Someone who speaks on behalf of one party for another with the goal of bringing peace, for delivering a message. And events in chapter 4 are so important. They're critical, really, to the rest of the book. So if you've read through the story, you know chapter 4 is important. If you haven't made it all the way through, when you get past chapter 4, you'll understand that these are very important events. And it's interesting that Esther and Mordecai have back and forth communication, but they never meet. So don't imagine in your mind a face-to-face -face conversation, you know, in the cover of darkness, where Esther and Mordecai are speaking with one another. No, one another. no they're, they're communicating through messages and messengers. You have go tell, go tell back and forth. And you have these messengers, Hathach, the eunuch being the head of all these, going in and out of the palace, 
But in the first few verses, we find Mordecai grieves for his people. He's mourning both his action and his appearance. You see it in the first verse. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He cries out loud with a loud and bitter cry. Traditional Jewish mourning. I'm going to look like I'm in mourning, and everybody's going to know that I'm mourning because I'm going to be crying out bitterly. But he's joined by the rest of God's people because it also tells us that there was great mourning among the Jews. What are they doing? They're fasting, they're weeping, they're mourning, and it says it takes place in every province. Now you have to understand that when they fast and when they weep, it's not just woe is me, woe is me. There is a calling out or a crying out to God. And so when we see the word fasting and weeping and we think about God's people, we need to also understand that there is a prayer element to this, a crying out to God. And it's happening all over the kingdom. And so in verses 4 and 5, we find out that Queen Esther learns that Mordecai is upset. He's mourning and she's deeply distressed, but she doesn't really know why. And so she does the best she can with information. She's like, well, I I guess we'll need to cheer Mordecai up. And so she tries to change his appearance and his outlook by sending him some clothes. And and I thought about, you know, the shallow, worldly attempts we offer sometimes to try to cheer people up when they're in mourning or distress. You know, we, we mean well sometimes, but we don't always say the right things or the best things. You know, people know God's in control, but sometimes the way we say it in the midst of a tragedy, you know, is is maybe not as helpful as it could be. Um, Things will get better. You know, it's true, but in the moment, is it really, you know, (laughs) that comforting to know when I'm hurting so bad? And so, to me, it was just a caution. You know, sometimes we, we hope to bring comfort, but... We need to be careful about the things that we think are comforting, and maybe sometimes the best thing is just to be present and to be available and let God work through us. So Esther, you know, after Mordecai refuses the clothes, sends hayfatch, which sounds very similarly to the word good, could mean goodness, and you see in the story that he evidently is a good messenger because he knows how to hold his He keeps confidence between Mordecai and Esther and even meets Mordecai, as we'll see, in the public place to deliver messages. And so Hathach is dispatched by Esther to go out and find what and why. What's going on with Mordecai? Why is he up so upset? And all the while, Mordecai is grieving. He trusts in a God that he may not be able to see. He may not know all the answers, but he does know the truth that deliverance will rise. It really fits verses 4 through 14, and we find in the story that Mordecai sends information and instructions back to Esther. So Hathach goes, and to find out why, Mordecai gives the message. The information is that, hey, Haman has a plot, he's going to kill you. There's already been a decree made, and here is a copy of the decree if you want to read it for yourself. And the instruction is, Esther, you've got to go to the king. There's no other way. Ask for his mercy. As the verse 8 tells us, beg his favor and plead with him for your people. 
There's no other way, Esther. You've got to go to save your people. You know, it's you. It's you. And then Esther replies back, quoting the law that everyone in the kingdom would know. That to come before the presence of the king, you had to have the permission of the king. There in verse 11, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they may live. It's a law that had no exceptions, not even for the queen. And on top of that, Esther tells Mordecai, it's been 30 days since the king has called me into his presence. So things don't really look like they're in Esther's favor. She seems reluctant to take a risk. She poses this excuse, okay, listen, Mordecai, if I go, you know, I could die. And it's obvious, you know, I'm not really high on the king's list right now because it's been 30 days since I've been in his presence. But all the while, Mordecai knew that God would keep his promise to his people. It was a promise that was made to Abraham, was passed down to his son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob, and throughout the generations came to Mordecai. And Mordecai knew that it was still in force in his day. That God would save his people. Look at verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have come, not come, to the kingdom for such a time as this. What did Mordecai know? Even if Esther refused to act, God would deliver his people, but Esther and her family would not escape. So if Esther didn't step up and rise to the occasion, God would bring about his plan in another way. But God did have a plan. Esther wasn't in the palace by accident. It was an act of God's providence because God is sovereign. Esther was there, as Mordecai put it so fitly, and you've probably heard so many times, every time you hear the name Esther, for such a time as God had a reason for Esther to be at that place, in the palace, at that time. It's a call to live your life with purpose, the purpose God has intended. And we look at these questions. Would Esther simply settle with being a Persian queen? Would she think it was good enough in her eyes to just be in a place of comfort and satisfaction in a worldly empire? Or would she accept God's invitation to embrace an even greater royal calling as a daughter of the king who is above all kings? And we live in the same tension every day. Do we want to be called a king or a queen by the world? Or do we want to live up to our birthright as sons and daughters, princes and and princesses of the King of Kings. Do we want to remain comfortable? Do we seek out to be accepted by the world, or do we recognize that we are chosen, called, set apart, called and equipped to live obedient lives that please God? 
So as you turn to verse 15, you find Esther makes her decision. Esther makes a courageous decision. See, in verse 15, the story turns. There's transformation in the life of this queen, of Esther, Hadassah. She's rising up to realize her identity and her purpose. Esther embraces both God and His people who are also her people. And for the first time in the story, it's not Mordecai giving instructions to the young queen. It's the queen, Queen Esther, giving directions to Mordecai. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. And there is then not a call for prayer, a call for fasting. And in first part of verse 16, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And then Esther, in the remainder of the verse, says, My attendants and I will do the same. And then the next sentence, powerful. After the prayer, after the fasting, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. I hope you can see in this, it's an expression of her, her faith and trust in God. It's a moment of transformation for her. She's enabled by the Spirit with a courage that's beyond her own. It's fueled by the fasting and prayers of the community. She's going to go to the king. She is willing to be the mediator for the Jews She's willing to risk her own life. And at this point, Queen Esther is without a doubt God's girl. She's a daughter of the king. And I have no hesitation in, in saying we're going to see her in heaven. It's a triumphant moment of faith. It's victorious. And then the chapter ends with Mordecai receiving the message from Esther. He does everything that Esther tells him to do. The Jews are praying and fasting for Esther, and the stage is set for chapter 5 and following. Esther's going to go to the king, and what will happen? If you read ahead, you already know, but it still is exciting to think about, and constantly just reminds me, wouldn't it be so nice to be able to just read these stories again with the freshness of, You've never read it before. And at this point, you probably want to stand up and cheer for brave Esther. You know, just clap your hands and say, oh, good girl, good girl, good girl. I mean, she's embraced her faith in God. She's realizing the purpose God has for her. She's going to go to the king. She's going to be the mediator for her people to plead for them. But we need to be careful and not make the story all about Esther. Now you're probably saying, hey, wait a minute, the story's named after her. Her name's all through the book. And if I were taking a class in literature, we would say Esther's the main character. It's a book about Esther. But I would argue that Esther is one of several supporting characters throughout the Bible and God's story of redemption. While we can't forget what Esther's done, we have to remember that her actions point toward not just a brave and courageous mediator, but a perfect 
who delivered mankind from danger. What danger? Danger of sin. Sin carries a death sentence. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss out on God's perfect standard. No one has ever kept it. We all deserve death. We all need someone to step in and be our rescuer. We need a mediator. Someone to go between us and God to make peace on our behalf. To plead our case. To raise our defense. To ultimately pay the penalty for our sin. To die in our place. 1 Timothy 2 tells us that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the main character of the Bible. He's the hero of all heroes. And in Jesus, God provided the perfect mediator who willingly died in our place so that we might have life. He's the only one who can save. And to show His great love, God sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. Messed up. Undeserving. Ungrateful. Sinners. And in the simple act of placing faith in Him, there's rescue from the clear and present danger. Because He's the most courageous and most faithful mediator you could ever have. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews wrote. Hebrews 7.25 This is in the New Living Translation. Therefore, He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He's able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. So the main truth that you get from this story is not go be a good girl like Esther and stand up. It's Put your trust in Jesus, the perfect mediator. But once you've made that connection, there's another truth that we should certainly draw from this. We can't ignore Esther's actions. We can't ignore the fact that God put her in this place for such a time as this, and she has this opportunity to go before the king and plead for her people. After all, the story is about her, and the book's named after her. So we can look, after we've seen Jesus as the perfect mediator, the one full of courage and bravery and faith, we can see Esther as a wonderful example of what it means to have courageous faith. Faith to put your trust in God. Faith to embrace your true identity. Who you are in Christ, not who the world says you should be, but who God says you are. Faith that would risk their own life for the benefit of others. Courageous faith. But there's something we need to know about that courageous faith. It's a gift. It's a gift that God gives. I believe that's why Esther, in preparation, says, you know, tell all the people that you can to pray and fast. That courage is a gift of God, and He willingly gives it through His grace and mercy. 
so once we have identified Jesus as the perfect mediator that we should trust in, we need to also understand that God will put you in challenging positions so you can exercise courageous faith. It's going to happen. Now, it doesn't mean that tomorrow at 9.50 at Centennial High School, you're going to be in a if-I-die-I-die circumstance. But you very well could be in a circumstance where you feel like you're going to die. It doesn't mean that in the work week you're, you're challenged in a way where you have to stand up for the faith that you believe to be true. And then since, since things don't just happen by accident, you're likely in the places you are, in the places you go, for such a time as this. How can I say that differently? God puts you in front of the people that you're in front of, in the places that you go, for a reason and a purpose. And we can have two choices. We can just try to blend in, not stick out, live like a citizen of the empire, so no one raises any question about us. Or we can rise up and have our own such a time as this moment and enjoy the blessing and adventure of obedience. Because that's what happens. When you say yes to God, you step into an adventure of blessing and obedience. But we also have to remember that when we refuse, it doesn't alter God's purposes. Don't think you're important enough to do that on your own. However, what we do miss out on is what God has for us in the adventure and in the journey. But when we choose to accept the challenge, we join with God in that adventure. So let me just give you three things, and then we're going to pray. How can we approach life with a such a time as this attitude? Just a, a few things from the story of Esther. First thing is find your identity in Christ. You're, you're not going to make it five minutes down the road Christian life if you're searching to find your identity in anything other than Jesus. He is your life and you are who he says you are in him. Period. So find your identity in Christ. Second, pray and ask others to pray for you. Esther sought the prayers of her people. We should seek out the prayer of others. Have people praying for you. Have a prayer partner. Have a prayer group. Pray for yourself. Have other people pray for you as well. And then last, embrace every situation as an opportunity. I don't remember who said it, or I would give him credit, but, you know, it, it was something like this. You know, God doesn't make accidents. He only makes opportunities. So may we go from these doors in this place, recognizing the great mediator that we have, the one who is our hope, the one who is our life, the one who gives us our purpose, our calling, and everything we need, the perfect mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And may we ask that God would give us the brave faith empowered by the Spirit to live our lives for His glory for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Oh Jesus, as we turn our hearts toward focus on what you might be saying to us individually. Lord, help us to see that you are the perfect mediator. And that by trust in you, faith in you, we not only have 
life eternal, but we have life abundant. And help us to see that that is a promise that goes on throughout all eternity. So Lord, help us to continue to trust and follow after the perfect mediator. But God, also help us to see that many times, often you put us in challenging positions. And it's so we can exercise courageous faith. And so in that, help us to apply these principles that we would find identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. That we would not only pray, but we would ask others to pray. And help us to see every situation of life, not as a problem, not as an accident, but as an opportunity we would live for your glory and your sake. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Jackie's going to play quietly. It gives us an opportunity to kind of process some of the things that God says to us many times. It's through it's not so much through the spoken word, but through God's word that he speaks. And even by his spirit, as you hear his voice speaking to you individually, and we take this time at the end to respond to that. So, you know, it, it's, it's a time to take seriously investing in your, your spiritual life. So as you, as you sit quietly, you know, you reflect on that. Have I really trusted Jesus to be my Savior? Or maybe have I wavered in that and I need to recommit my trust to Him today? You know, do, do I look at the list of things in my life and see, okay, that's just a list of problems and I'm I'm tempted to say, God, just make those problems go away. God, make those problems go away. But God, I'm asking you now, help me in that, to see those as opportunities to trust you in a deeper way, to learn more about your goodness and your mercy, to learn how to walk with you step by step along the way. Or maybe it's just the fact that you need to just say, God, I'm here. I don't know what plan or purpose you have for me, but I'm, I'm saying, God, I want you to have all of me for all that you will do for me. The front's open for prayer. You can sit where you are. It could be that you need to just grab somebody beside you and say, hey, will you pray with me? And I'm sure they'd be glad to. I'll be at the front if you need someone to pray with or talk to. But I do invite you to stand or you can sit quietly, whichever is most comfortable. Your music's going to play. And then as we listen to the Lord, we respond.
not already standing, why don't you join um, those that are standing while our worship team comes up. And we um, want to thank you for worshiping with us at Cross Timber this morning. Um, if you recognize the words of that song, um, where he leads me, I will follow. And may that be the prayer of our hearts today. That where God leads, we'll follow. And we'll trust him with the details, listening to his voice, walking in the life that he shows us for his his glory. It's been a pleasure worshiping with you this morning. We're going to sing um, together. Um, so enjoy the worship. When we're finished singing together, um, you'll be dismissed. So the Lord bless you. I believe everything that you say you 